This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. With me tonight is special guest co-host Hans L. Hi. And uh, you're just telling me that Costa Rica is still in quarantine and that you're on curfew as of 5 o'clock every night. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh... We've been getting around 500 cases a day uh, from the past couple of weeks. And uh, Good. I, I believe our population is like 6 million, so it's a, a lot. Uh, and uh, in orange zones, which is what they call the area where I live, it's yeah, it's shut down at 5 p.m. Not allowed to be on the streets. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, pretty grim. What, and what does this have to do with Elvis? Talking about Elvis a second ago. Now you're talking about oh, no. illness. <laughs> just because he died, I guess. I don't know. I was just I, I couldn't see it on the list that I have here as that movie being directed, but by Carpenter, which is who we're talking mm. about, right? Did you ever see Osmosis Jones? Yeah. That's that was that was a that was a film from what, what was it like 1999-2000? Bill Murray, Chris Rock was the germ. And uh, what, yeah, what, a, what a film, Osmosis Jones. There was a CW show of Osmo, Osmosis Jones. It was called, I think, uh, Ozzy and, and, and Harriet was, uh, was the name of it. It was a Kids WB program. And I remember they couldn't afford Chris Rock for that. So they brought in like a Fiverr.com Chris Rock impersonator. Did you ever watch that? Nope. Was it his cousin? What was his name? Uh the other guy that Tony Rock, yeah. the other guy that does comedy, the Charlie Murphy of the Rock family. No, I, I would, I mean, I would hope not. Uh, Elvis, though, Elvis was made for TV, so that's why that's not on the list. That was released by Shout Factory a couple of years back. It got remastered, and I think he made that between. What it, it might have been between Assault on Precinct Thirteen and Halloween. Wait, Osmosis. Osmosis Jones is a Farrelly Brothers movie. I just realized that. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. they direct it. No, they, I mean, <laughs> they've got quite the uh, the range. Those two brothers, especially the one brother who's now an Oscar winner for Green Book, huh. who uh, you know the internet decided was the most racist film ever made when it won Best Picture. I was rejoicing when that film won Best Picture, just because I knew it would deeply upset people who said. No, 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 no. That's not the type of film we celebrate anymore. <laughs> we don't do the Driving Miss Daisy film for Best Picture. We do uh, whatever's whatever whatever Spike Lee just came. Uh, the Five Bloods. Yes, we talked about this film not too long ago. That's our Best Picture winner. That has something to say. John Carpenter has a lot to say. He's a he's an old school 1960s li- uh, liberal. Uh, my brain's not with it right now. I don't know if you can tell. I'm all over the place. You're good. I'm uh, stumbling over my words. He he is like the original Jordan Peele. How about that? Mm. Okay. Mm, no, you don't agree with that comparison? Uh, I mean, if you just look at their filmography, I guess you can see some parallels there on genre, maybe, but... Uh, well, he's only Peel has only done two films, right? It's still it's still too early yeah. to even talk about Peel as a filmmaker and uh, have any kind of authority or say in what his legacy is going to be. Same with people like Ari Aster or um, Robert Eggers. Too early, 
way too early. Um, why? Why? But, why the comparison, uh, though? You, you I, mean you mean by the, like their social stances and their politics? I think they both have one thing in common, which is uh, they're going to do a goofy sci-fi film premise, and then they're going to inject social commentary, and it's probably going to be well done enough. Okay. I don't. I don't see. I don't see John Carpenter having a uh, modern contemporary uh, to compare him to. Otherwise, I think Jordan Peele is probably about as close as it gets at the moment. Well, that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you because uh, when you look at movies from the '80s, and you know Carpenter was one of the big directors from at least genre movies, uh, you you get a lot of uh, muscular, catchphrasey uh, action heroes. That you know, thirty days later, they're still celebrated by what they are. Maybe not in the same way yeah. as they were when they came out, which was you know, this is awesome, this is the coolest thing. Now it's kind of seen as in a in a through goofy eyes or through like this cheesy eighties thing that's still awesome, but it's not seen as you know serious. It's not it's it's not like um, you know people are trying to be Rambo like like the way that it was seen in the eighties. So now it's like a nostalgia. Uh, goofy action hero thing that people watch it for that reason now if you think 30 years from now when we're going to be maybe celebrating the films from the 2000s until now what would you take from uh what we call it millennium filmmaking from the 2000s until now mm. that you think we'll be celebrating that way in 30 years so are, what are you asking exactly are you saying that where it's going to be revered as something that's maybe a little cheesy and over the top. Yeah, because if you think of 80s like, movies, like the first thing that, well, maybe not the first thing, but one of the first things that would come to mind would be genre horror movies or action stars, because that's when, when they started. You know, the muscular, the you have to be in insane shape to be an action hero kind of thing. But what about the 2000s until, let's say now, which has been 20 years, what about those 20 mm. years is iconic or do you think would be celebrated 30 years from now like those movies are being celebrated now? Because I don't know if there's anything that you could spe uh, specify on or like focus on in filmmaking in the last 20 years that you can, you know, think would be a, a yeah, thing that's I, celebrated. Because even 90s, like I, the, it, it, with the 90s, you, you can say, I don't know... Uh, they had that uh, it's about to be the year 2000 feel. So most of those movies have that kind of feeling. And also the, the acting was a, a little bit cheesy, but not 80s cheesy. It's like, like more trying to be edgy. But then when you get to the 2000s, well, like what, what, what's the thing? Technology, I guess, maybe. But then in the first thing that came to mind, the first thing that came to mind for me for the, for the aughts is not even really in the odds. It, it's of the 90s, mm -hmm. which is that self-referential, tongue-in-cheek, scream, I know what you did last summer kind of campy humor that was apparent in uh, properties. You know, they, they weren't afraid to not take themselves seriously, but also still offer a serious film with, like, real stakes within the plot. Um, I mean, I for the odds, that's, that's difficult to say. I think... I don't know if there's really a defining genre that comes out of that decade. The closest thing might be, and this, you know, this has nothing to do with uh, John Carpenter or or anything mm -hmm. in that genre. There's there's nothing, uh, you know, there's no real overlap there. It's just like Judd Apatow style comedies of improvisation for six minutes straight, two people riffing. That's really all I know that that had 
been birthed and came out of that decade specifically for film. The, the problem with that is that comedy is not something that you can watch in 30 years and still get it. Because if you, if you, Correct. if you, let's say you, you watch Duck Soup today, you know, or you watch any other movie from those brothers, the, what is it, Mark? What? Ducks, you're, you're referencing the Mark yeah, brothers? Yeah, because that was comedy from the time that was relevant and what's funny at the time. But if you watch it now, maybe you'll find appreciation for what it was at the time, but it's, you're not going to be laughing out loud while watching it. Sure. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I actually went back and I, I, I watched a bit of the Marx Brothers somewhat recently, and you're completely correct. You can, you can have respect for what they were trying to accomplish, right, and what they're doing and how clever they might be. But, you know, you're, that's not going to be a gut buster like whatever your favorite comedian today, uh, his best joke might be. And I think it might be a little different with, with something like, uh, you know, Three Stooges or whatever, just because physical comedy... Right ages much better than uh, improvisation or any kind of, you know, wit. But, no, you're, you're completely correct in your assessment there. And if you think about uh, 90s movies, they were so close to the 2000s that a lot of the genre was focused on what's going to happen after the 2000s. So the, the future that they would see, most things, not everything, but most things were based on, you know, what the future is going to be in the 2000s. And I... I think we've lost that. I, I don't know if anything sci-fi or or you know futuristic that's come out recently. Uh, what can you say? The um, Blade Runner movie maybe is the, the only one where you can think you know th this might be a futuristic idea of what the future will be. But that's something that's been dropped. I think uh, most uh, you know mo movies in the eighties and nineties were very focused on the future and what our life was going to be in 50, 100 years. Sometimes they would even make movies that were set in the 2000s, which were completely uh, wrong with, you know, what life was going to be. Uh, just to, to uh, link it into the car carpenter conversation, uh, Ghost of Mars is a perfect example of what people in the 90s thought the future was going to be like. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that recently, but it's... Oh, God. Yeah, but, but it, it, it feels very... Uh, it has a lot of uh, Doom vibes for me. Uh, you know the rock movie Doom. It felt like the mm -hmm. universe was very similar. Of uh, you know, this is what uh, we think the future will be like. Everything is very industrial and dark and and uh, cold. Um, but uh, I feel like at least on on genre movies, we've we've lost that sense of uh, uh, I guess what the future is going to be like and that creativity of what that's going to be. Because yeah, if I if I try to think of a movie recently that's done that. Uh, What's the uh, the movie about androids with uh, the guy from Star Wars? A couple of how, years how ago. How recent is it? A couple this of movie? years ago. It's about an and he built an android and he like falls in love with the android or whatever. Ex Machina. Yes, that's yeah. one that comes to mind. But again, uh, we've lost. I, I feel like we've lost that genre. There's there's not that that uh, curiosity about what the future will be anymore. Especially when you look at those, you know, I think I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, uh, you know, the, it has more to do with the the lifespan of the Hollywood system than I think any sort of real creativity def like deficiency that, mm. that might be occurring. Something I've been doing as of recent is looking into just just the general trajectory of how things went from roughly like the 1960s and the death of the Western, which was probably the most popular genre for its time. 
you know, that's that's uh, what people were showing up to en masse. That was the modern, like, superhero genre of that day. And how that transformed into, <clears throat> uh, you know, more, more crime, high-substance indie filmmaking of the 70s. And then how that comes to an end with <clears throat> uh, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. Right. And they completely do away with that in favor of the blockbuster. You have big event films like Indiana Jones. All your T-shirts, essentially, Hans. Yep. <laughs> Indiana Jones, uh, uh, you know, Star Wars sequels, Goonies. Batman, Spielberg, uh, some Goonies, right? Spielberg movies, yeah. I think, I think by the time we hit the aughts, right, we go through the whole postmodernist self-referential phase that I was referring to, where everything's tongue in cheek, and they they hit a wall where it's like, okay, we, well, what do we do now? Um. You know, the money's not coming in as reliably as before. People are not showing up to these independent features or, or you know, simpler films. What I'll, what I'll refer to that as, as, as opposed to a big blockbuster. And by the end of the decade, they take a hard turn, I think, because of Christopher Nolan with the success of The Dark Knight into going uh, more into the superhero phase. That, I think, probably uh, winds up igniting the whole Marvel Studios thing, even though they had Iron Man in production at the time, and that came out, I think, before The Dark Knight did. And they might have had Incredible Hulk already ready to go, but they did add that one pin with Robert Downey Jr. at the very end of it. I think because of The Dark Knight and the success of Iron Man combined, you have that specific genre defining uh, the 10s, right? Right. And so... That wound up being inundated so much with that limited the taste of the general theater goer to which you know, I, there's not really any room to explore an evolution of any other genres or to delve into, you know, science fiction or, or whatever it might be because people have been fed one thing. So they get everything funneled through that right. one thing. So maybe, you know, if we're going to get science fiction, it's going to be through Guardians of the Galaxy, or, or, or what, that's going to be the closest thing to that. Mm. Um, I, th- I think it's just we're at a point where film has to operate within a different, a different channel in order to have any kind of creative longevity or, or uh, enhancement of its intellect. So what you're saying is that in 30 years we're going to be looking back at superhero movies from the... 2000s? I've always seen a lot of people compare the superhero movies of today and their popularity to Westerns. I don't think it's comparable just because of how, you know, it's bludgeoned filmmaking as a whole. Like, it's really killed any kind of mainstream studio system where you can make uh, films of varying genres. Again, it's always going to have to be uh, with this particular mask on. And that was something we were talking about with Don Jolly with Joker, right? Mm-hmm. We finally have like a mid-budget, serious, really well-done crime film released through a major studio. And it has to be about the Joker. It has to be a, a backdoor pilot to Batman. I, I, I don't know. I, I think the only way that's going to change is if things currently stay as is because of COVID. And you have movies that are primarily released direct to streaming. And that, that whole revenue system has to change. If that happens, uh, 
you know, you're you're only going to be able to see superhero movies in theaters, and everything else will be, I think, given a better opportunity, right, than what they have now. To be fair, if you look at heroes from the '80s, they're not the mm-hmm. greatest movies. Most of the most of the the ones that people still remember are because of iconic characters, not because the movie is any good. And you realize that if you rewatch them, so maybe it's not that far off that you know uh, we grew up watching these movies as kids, which is why maybe we think that they're better than they actually is, and also because of the iconography that we've been pestered with for so many years. But maybe if we mm-hmm. grew up with those superhero movies from now. Uh, as we grew up with those ones, that's what we'll be looking back uh, in 30 years. Because if you, you know, if you think about, I'm looking at the Carpenter list right now. If you think about Escape from New York, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, like those movies are, have like a very specific main hero, let's say. But the movies are cheesy and the dialogue is cheesy and the action is cheesy, uh, mostly because of the effects, but also the dialogue that that the characters have uh, wouldn't work in a modern day movie, I think, unless you're trying to do something, you know, retro. Uh, so, okay, so, so there's there's two things going on here, though. With uh, let's say we'll we'll compare Big Trouble in Little China to, uh, I don't know, uh, Ant Man. Okay, okay. So, I mean, we're, we're we're trying to compare, say, like maybe it's the same thing. We're just not recognizing that yeah. uh, due to bias. Okay, so with this, okay. With maybe Big Trouble in Little China is not the best example of this. There, there's a there's two different displays to a film like that, which is there's the technical creativity that that movie undoubtedly has. Yeah. You watch that film, and visually speaking, it's like it, it's like nothing else, right. even from that time. Um, and then. You know, yes, you get into the dialogue, you get into the story, and it's flimsy. Yeah. You know, it's it, it doesn't hold up. It's, uh, you know, goofball. It's ba- basic. Okay. It depends and then, depends on the main character to drive the movie. Without the main right. character, with the cheesiness and the lines and all that, it would just be a whatever movie that's not remembered by anyone. Sure, sure. So the, it does contribute some kind of characteristic to the film. But let's say at the time, that's looked at as a flaw. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, for film, that's more of a flaw than the the artistry of the movie. And then you take a look at a movie like Ant Man or uh, a Captain America sequel, and everything is very well done, technically speaking, right? Every, I mean, the performances are good enough. Yeah, you can see that the actors are pretty exhausted, right? <laughs> but everybody's delivering their lines the way that they need to. Everything looks good on the screen. It's well composed. It's well shot. Uh, but there's just a void there, right? And it's I think it's that lack of creativity. You have everything that's been planned out six years in advance, and it's just a matter of like putting together a very easy uh, or, or a, a very easy puzzle with a hundred thousand pieces to it. Right. It's just a matter of time. You know what you're doing. It's just consuming. And so I think that's where the difference is, right? These people who were operating on films back in the 80s had more creative liberty to uh, tackle certain things within their films or explore than what Disney currently offers with these films, which I think lends them to being more forgettable, right? 
I mean, you can even like look back at the comics and then look at the the films today. And for me, and again, maybe this is just my bias, you know, to what you're speaking to. I think there's a night and day comparison because they had more room to play around and build something that was going to be memorable Mm -hmm. or uh, at least, uh, uh, you know, stark in your memory with the the comic books, even if the, the writing and the stories were shit than these very well-polished, modern, boring stories, you know. I But I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that comic books were not a mainstream thing back in the day. Comic books were a thing that you would get laughed at. And now, saying that you read comic yes. book, it's seen as a badge of pride for whatever reason. Even if you don't read them, you can pretend by just watching the movies. So so maybe it's that. And also, I don't know if, if making a comparison between those movies and the movies from the... 80s that we're talking about it's fair because when those movies came out they weren't the monster that these marvel movies are expect when you know before they come out they're already expecting to make you know over 500 million dollars without you know a trailer so maybe it's a little bit unfair because the the these directors in the 80s were doing it with a smaller audience and smaller budget that you would if if you compare it or if you adjust it with inflation or whatever, it would still not be as much as they spend on these movies. But do you think that that heart that those 80s movies have that you won't find in a modern day movie uh, is mostly because the directors or the creators got lazy or the creativity was stumped and not, not uh, studios were not allowing them to be creative or because technology has made everything so easy that it's easier to just take a shortcut and work on what you already know works, which would be, you know, a, a very simple story, three-act simple story with really good special effects, which anyone can do. So it's not it's not really a, a thing that should make you watch a movie. But since all of that is so much easier to do now than in the 80s, uh, and also because of the, you know, the budgets that you are expecting uh, to get from these movies... Do you think that, that the creativity is lost, the directors are hand-tied, or everyone just got lazy because of how easy it is to make all of that shit? So I, I, I don't think it's a binary thing. I, I think it's a little bit of... And, it, and it's varying, obviously, with, with each film. Um, I, think it, I, I think it's a combination of all of those things. I was, actually, I, I was thinking only minutes ago about how I think something gets lost when you rely prim- primarily on doing your effects and whatnot after the fact. Right. There's some kind of safety net there where, uh, you know, maybe you're adding in blood or what have you when it's so simple. You can just squirt mm-hmm. something on. I mean, maybe you fuck it up four times. It doesn't land the way you want it to. But I think little things like that pile up and go a long way, right? And and you can see that with, with these kinds of movies. Um, there's so much... There's so much craftsmanship to them. Like where, yes, maybe maybe they're not good films. Maybe it's not Ron Howard's A Beautiful Mind. Right. But um, you're going to get something out of the experience of going along with this. And if you have uh, an appreciation for certain technical qualities, you're going to recognize that, especially in John Carpenter's films. And I think draw something from that. So 
I, I, in regards to your question, I do think that the studios have clamped down on what they want to put out because they're a business first and foremost. Um, you know, there, there's a lot on the line if something like Birds of Prey doesn't deliver right. nowadays. It's, I mean, because it, it's, it's essentially just two, two giant systems in play. It's Disney and it's Warner Brothers. It's Marvel and it's DC. So, uh, the, you know, these types of things are, are much more of a liability. So they have more control over the, the decision-making. And directors, I don't know if modern directors have anything interesting to say. And they certainly don't when they're working on these types of properties. I think they, they revere the past too much. They try to recreate their favorite elements of, of creative properties from their childhood and when they were younger, whatever they have nostalgia for, and bring that out into properties when people have already done that already in a much better way as opposed to trying to forge a new path. I think that also probably defines the last decade of filmmaking. I mean, when we were watching Chillerama, that that quartet of horror movies yeah. by Adam Green and uh, Adam Rifkin, uh, Joe Lynch, and uh, I, I shouldn't even name the fourth one who did that teenage werewolf <laughs> gay beach movie. That was a tr- I couldn't believe they would allow that in 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 that <laughs> in that uh, anthology. Uh, taking a look at uh, some of those films, even. And these are like guys who were already in their 40s when they made that. Yeah. And there's so many references to things like the Goonies and this and that. And it's just like... And we hit a, we hit a, a, a peak of that with Stranger Things, right. which normalized that and made it a, a, a regular thing. So it, it, it's a little bit of everything. If the directors were creative enough, they would find a way with limited means and a limited budget, and make interesting films. And some of them are, a lot of them aren't. That's just that's just the nature of the beast. That's, I guess, one of the weird things that now, you know, there's been movies, there have been successful movies that have made with a phone as a camera. So you'd think that those creative voices from the 80s that were able to make weird, gross-out, gory movies will be able to do something like that now, and I guess some independent directors are doing that, but I wonder if if it's just something that because they're not quote unquote mainstream because of that same reason that now uh, mainstream movies are a very specific kind of movies. Um, so, but also, also on, on the topic you're you're saying right now, because this directly relates to something like Tangerine, the Sean mm-hmm. Baker film, where he did shoot that on an iPhone and it was obviously modified, yeah. so it could lenses or whatever uh you know not that this is the case with tangerine necessarily but filmmakers today are much more hung up on messaging than any kind of visual aesthetics which isn't to say that uh there aren't plenty of visual aesthetically pleasing filmmakers that are offering like a, something that's going to be i don't want to use the word unique but just just a you know like a feast for the eyes right i think there's there's definitely some people like that that are working but I think they're few and far between. I think people are much more hung up on thinking to themselves, like, I have something to say with my script. Ugh. I got, I got, to, I got to help. I got to do my part today. And uh, they want to be John Carpenter without being John Carpenter, essentially. We need more Nigel backs out there. Remember Nigel from Bad Bad Ben? We need more creators. We need more creators like that that make. 
ghost movies with you, you're joke you're joking right now i'm not i i get I, but you're correct you're correct though i'm not because he made i mean how many five movies and he started with just he made seven movies just, just seven movies in a one episode animated series with just uh well he started with just a gopro right that's what he said just a gopro in the corners of his house he w- <laughs> so let, let, let's explain this this is this is at like the height of paranormal activity being a thing actually no. maybe not maybe not i think it was at the end yeah, well, it was yes, over yeah. it was done and over with and nigel bach right that's his name yeah. is he i mean we're not anyway we should get him on the show we should get, we i bet you we could talk to Absolutely. him about his series. that'll be the next retrospective um <laughs> he is just like a grown middle-aged man who was probably renting out his house as like a bnb or something and he decided, I'm going to make a paranormal activity film. And he just had one GoPro, and he would have to go up into the corner of the room and plant it. And then he would act out a scene who knows how many times. <laughs> and he, not, he did seven movies. Not many. If you look at those takes, I don't think he tried many times to get it right. He probably just thought, okay, this one's good, and move up, moved on. My favorite yeah. parts of yeah. that, though, was when he had to pretend with half of his body off camera that he was being pulled into the room. I don't know if you remember that, uh, but it's just, it's just that. half of his body on the floor while the camera is, you know, on a, on a high angle so that you couldn't see the other half of his body while it's quote unquote being dragged. It's just him. But yeah, we need, we hmm. need more people like that, that, you know, are able to make a profit out of their shit movie. And you're able to come up with seven fucking six sequels, six sequels of it. Just, yeah, Nigel back, and and also I think I think the key there is I mean the returns don't have to be explosive return like he's not a millionaire from these movies he made probably like five thousand dollars off the first one when he spent maybe five hundred dollars like that's that's a viable source of income for him given the rate of these films and how frequently they've been released so yeah I mean with somebody like Nigel Bach. Or, or 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 whatever his name is, um, you know. Yes, he's he's in the he's in his twilight years. Sure, he's not going to retain. I mean, he's going to learn certain things going forward, right? But let's say if a twenty year old started doing something like this, with we'll see, we'll even say the same level of quality and enjoyment, right? That they can get across the screen to the viewer. There is plenty of opportunity for that person to to grow as a filmmaker. And become like maybe a serious contender within 15 years of continually doing that if they still pick up, you know, things along the way. So I I think that's going to be the key. That's probably going to happen more frequently, especially with how easy it is to get a film on Amazon Prime. Clearly, that's how we watched all of these on somebody else's account. They just ran up their (laughs) ran up their Amazon bill and just twenty two dollars. Bad band movies. do you think? Uh, oh fuck! I completely lost my train of thought because of that Batman thing. Uh, yeah, no. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I was gonna ask you something, but I completely forgot. Uh, related to this Batman. Uh, Osmosis Jones. You were talking about no, no, no. Uh, but Bill Murray and Peter Farrelly. Oh. Before, before this Batman. You know what they call Osmosis Jones in in Spain is uh, El Negro Amigo. That was the title. I'm over there. I'm not surprised. That's still not a controversial word for us. Still. You can still hear it on the street all the time. It's fine. Uh, the thing that I was going to ask you, I just remembered. So, 
since you're saying all of that about how, you know, if you're young and you try this, these things, you can learn and actually become someone. Uh, that sounds like whatever vloggers you see on YouTube now or like YouTube creators. Mm. And since there hasn't been that, cur- I, I don't understand why, but the, the YouTubers that have put out movies like, uh, what's his name? Dog, whatever. Nostalgia Critic. That's what Dog the Bounty Hunt. Oh, Nostalgia Critic. Yeah. Doug. Wa- oh, well, hold on a second. No, 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 no. Let, let's remove him from the conversation. Okay. I'm just, I'm just. Because, th- <laughs> I mean. I'm just thinking. He's the worst example <laughs> to try and like offer a counterpoint. Because, I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying here. He's what now? He's about probably 43, 44. It's been that. Um, and he has just been perpetually making videos and he he's been making films mm-hmm. right which are just like long videos three hours that he does for youtube where he gets all his friends together and it's like he's making fan films of his own product you know kick assia and, and whatnot and this man has not improved one iota in 17 years on the internet <laughs> he he figured he all he has done has gone from 480p to 1080p and it looks shit <laughs> cleaner it's, it looks it looks like garbage still. The, it's still trash it's off there's nothing that you're getting from more pixels though that's the thing you could still there was watch it at 480 i think i think he i think he got away with more and had more charm to his product probably because i can say this about the angry video game nerd when it was low quality shit that was shot on like dv camcorders right like uh, then, I mean, because we're talking about early YouTube. We're talking about people figuring out how to even do anything with this. You can upload a video at like 360p. Right. And you could get away with a lot. And so there's some nostalgia to that. Just like how, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting in the 1960s or 70s and watching a Sven Gulli type mm. guy. And maybe you have some kind of like nice memory of that. Even if to most people, you know, they think... Why the fuck do I want some fat man with a with a sharpie mustache interjecting between commercials? I'm, tr- I'm trying to watch the film. I'm trying to watch Mission Impossible too. Here, I don't give a fuck about Sven Gulli. Why am I watching Titless Elvira? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Um. So, so somebody like Doug Walker and uh, you know James Rolfe. James Rolfe. You know he he's managed to at least recognize that his character is tiresome at his age and i don't think he has the luster for that and so he has other things he does that are more appealing doug walker is is the complete opposite of that he's just somebody who has you know stuck it out without deviating once from any kind of plan he's had since like 2004 and Clearly someone who doesn't accept any kind of criticism because <laughs> there's been no improvement at all. And it's not like everyone loves his work either. It's not like he's not getting criticism from everyone that watches his videos. But no, I think the people that, that still watch him are only doing so out of some kind of moral obligation. Like, I've been with him this long. I don't, I don't want to jump off. I'll feel bad. He's my friend. You know, I, the way that people would get like fanatical <laughs> about Opie and Anthony or right. something like that. It's like, oh, you know, like and then hop on the phone and talk to them like they've known them for yeah, fucking yeah, 20 yeah. years and make personal jokes at their expense. Like, <gasps> you're a stranger. Yeah, Who the yeah, fuck yeah. are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. But the, po- the point that I was trying to make with Doug, I guess that was a terrible example. I should have used someone like Ralph the Movie Maker or something. Uh, what I, Ralph the <laughs> I, I guess what I, what, I, what I was trying to say is that um, if you have... Uh, 
you know, that the example that you made about uh, young people that could learn or start doing vlogs and then become something bigger. You you think that the trajectory yeah. of this uh, YouTube creators will go closer to that because of the availability that we have to equipment and because most of them, at least the big ones, make a pretty good living just making their bullshit videos, right? Like someone like uh, like James Rolfe uh, tried to quit that character, but no one really gave a shit about the rest of these things as much as the character, so he had to go back. Now, you think about him and he made his bullshit movie. Uh, about his character that not, wasn't very well received, but I get. I guess my question is: Why are we not watching uh, those creators become more than just a YouTuber, uh, or, or more than just uh, a star in a YouTube production film? Uh, if we have access to technology that makes everything quote unquote easier now. Uh, when they're successful and they have the money to make something, I mean, we're we're making a movie with no budget. So I guess the the thing that I'm I'm yeah. a little bit confused about is that how someone like let's say uh, Casey Na- Neistat or whatever his name is was someone big with with yeah. a lot of money that could turn into something like that. Is it because they're comfortable with what they do and they don't really need that? Oh, I guess I guess it's difficult for me to believe that someone like Dog Walker still enjoys doing the same bullshit for so long, um, and have the same energy of like, yeah, I can't wait to put out my review on Cats, you know? Like, like that, that, that's the thing. It's just like, okay, so you're a filmmaker, or you call yourself a filmmaker, but you're not trying to get better and actually put a movie out or get out of this, right? But right. out of this YouTube world, why do you think we're not seeing that? Or do you think it's something that we're going to see maybe in the next five? 10 years maybe if YouTube's still around. Uh, it, again, it's a couple of different things, but I think ultimately people become beholden to whatever external entities there are that are uh, contributing to easiness within their way of living. So I, I think on a greater scale, we, we see this with like a, a James Gunn type or a Taika Waititi where they become company men. Right. I think this is just a micro version of that where you have somebody like James Rolfe, right? who has had opportunity. I mean, we've talked about this, I think on this show in the past where Adam Wingard wanted him to star in VHS two as the guy who gets the eye transplant. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the segment from body bags, which is a John Carpenter film. We'll, we'll probably be talking about. Um, and he turned that down to work on his own film when it probably would have been like a week of shooting. And VHS two is a, is a very good horror movie. Yeah. Uh, big mistake, big mistake. So, I mean, why are we not seeing these types of guys take their their channel and, and try to make a film or, or something along those lines, I think is the, the question you're yeah, getting yeah. at. In the case of Casey Neistat, uh, Casey Neistat is partially responsible for the Safdie brothers. Okay. He was a producer on, I think, Heaven Knows What, which was their first like real movie. They did a couple of practice films leading up to that. But he was a big financier, and he was one of the producers, and I think he also won some like Indie Spirit Award it comes down to what they view as their their work right. and what their passion is, right? And if they have if they've reached a point in their work where they are masters of it, like James Rolfe with the Cinemasker Channel, if he continues doing things as he has been doing and throws out a new series every couple of years, I mean he'll be he'll be fine the rest of his life. He'll be very comfortable, and I think especially as you get older, you, you start to think about that. And it's like, well, do I really want to burden myself with this fantasy that I couldn't really grasp 
my hands around and, and you know, master the, the techniques that are required of, you know, storytelling within this and, and being a visual entertainer in that regard. Because there's a big difference between doing a 18 to 32 minute YouTube video review on something and coming up with a script, hiring people, getting actors, getting good performances, uh, composing a, an interesting uh, story and film, and also knowing how to spruce up the, the frame that you're shooting. There's, there's so much involved there than just picking up a camera and doing everything else that it's not what I think a lot of these people expect right off the bat, and they get discouraged and go back to what they're comfortable with, which in the case of Nostalgia Critic and James Rolfe, etc., are these types of videos they've been doing for 20 years. In the case of Ralph the Movie Maker, uh, he is somebody that it appears is not discouraged by that because he's done a couple of short films that were like fairly lengthy, like 35 minutes long. And then he put out his his like thesis film, uh, Lover. I, he was going to, I, I, he, I think he was going to some school in Boston because I recognized some of the landmarks in the trailer. I haven't watched the movie. Um, I don't think I could actually palette the entire 90 minutes of it. I, I, I'm happy he, you know, finished his goal and put it out. But at the same time, when you have that kind of audience and you do finish a movie and it's clearly not a very good movie, it's not well made. He's still 21, 22, whatever. He's young. So if he keeps at it, he'll make something good someday. Um, But if you have a giant audience that loves everything you do and they're like primed to YouTube videos and they're saying, this is great, Ralph. This is really good. I, I love this movie. That's dangerous. Yeah. That's dangerous because you might get to a point where you become Doug Walker mm-hmm. and you think Kickassia 2 is enough and is, a, is <laughs> legitimate in your head, you know, as a film. So hopefully that doesn't happen with Ralph. I actually think he has some potential just based off of his work ethic. Um, but that, that's, that's, that's absolutely a thing that could happen is you believe your own hype, you believe your own audience, and even as that starts to dwindle, uh, you don't improve or, or or have a self-awareness enough to fix whatever rough edges of your work there may be are you are you uh you say that from a personal experience everything you just said from your experience of working on oh i don't know Hans. <laughs> uh i mean let's take a look at all the hidden 2013 videos <laughs> of, of mine with mike malkiewicz atlantic city's finest um why don't we go back to the well there? How about I just keep using material from that for the next eight years because I couldn't finish that project? <laughs> how about we get? How about we get to? Uh, how about we get to John Carpenter? Right. The work of John Carpenter. We just had a long introduction. We're talking about ingenuity in filmmaking, yeah. creative pioneers, real DIY aesthetics and attitude, and I can't imagine a filmmaker who embodies that better from the 20th century than than somebody like John Carpenter. Uh, 1974, he starts out with Dark Star, which I think was recently added to the Criterion channel. I've never seen this film. I'm going to say right off the bat, I have not seen all of John Carpenter's films. You have, correct? I am missing three now that I'm looking at the list. This one, Dark Star. What what are the three that you're missing? Dark Star, Assault, and uh, Starman. Okay, so you, you did you get around to seeing the Elvis made for TV movie we were talking about? It no, that's another one. I guess that's that one's not on the list. I haven't seen Body Bags either. Now that you mentioned it, but every other one of his features—that's that's a shared credit. Hmm. 
Uh, Body Bags is a is a I believe it's three segments, an anthology where he directs two of them, and for whatever reason, Toby Hooper happens to direct one of them, and he plays the crypt keeper kind of character between segments. Uh, do you think that TV movies should be considered part of a filmmaker's uh, filmography? Because I go back and forth on that a little bit. Same with documentaries. I mean, I guess it was more uh, normal to do that back in the day. You don't really see a lot of film directors that are doing TV movies now. Uh, but it should count. Uh, even though the budget is not as, as big and the, you know, the things that you can get away with are not are a little bit more lenient than what you can do in a movie, I, I think they should, they should count just because it's a part of their work. Even if it was something that was made for TV, uh, then again, what are the like the biggest TV movies that you can think, or, or biggest director that you can think that started doing TV movies that ended up having like a uh, Spielberg? Okay, uh, stop me there. <laughs> I believe Spielberg. <laughs> Spielberg, his first movie was a made-for-TV movie, wasn't it? It was that Road one. I know that he also directed the. I don't know. I, what about in this case, right? What if, uh, what if it's a like movie of the month with a special character like Poirot or Columbo or I mean Nick Reffin did, I I think uh, Miss Marple over in Denmark, and that was just like a series of uh, made for TV movies with a, a particular character, but it operated like a series, kind of like Columbo, where maybe it's once. Once a month or something, and it's a 90-minute self-contained episode. Okay. Spielberg, I think, directed the very first episode of Columbo. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's plenty of examples, but that's also different because uh, there's a, a certain television uniform to those things, right? As opposed to Toby Hooper directing Salem's Lot right. or uh, Tommy Lee Wallace doing It or any of the big Stephen King properties where, uh, you know, the the... the the silver screen was maybe too limited for time than what television could have offered. And so by default, it got broadcast on NBC as opposed to, uh, you know, chopped up into three different films do, do, for the theater. Do you think direct-to-DVD movies killed that in- industry, if you want to call it that, of the TV movie? It was just easy to make a DVD and just put it out there like that? Because you don't really see that many. You see a lot of series or like a lot of short series of three, four episodes, but you don't really see a lot of TV movies that are specifically to be aired on, on TV. I, I, don't think, I don't think DVD is responsible for that. I think reality television is responsible for that. Because people, people became dejected to any kind of scripted narratives. I think not, not everybody, obviously. There, there's always going to be popular programs like Lost and whatnot. But the TV movie definitely died yeah. in the early aughts. I think the last one... The last one that comes to mind for me are like some more direct to television Stephen King properties when they remade Carrie for I think like USA or NBC uh, Rose Red like that was all very early on. Uh, I don't think we really had any in the 2010s. Mm. I think it was just because you had uh, shows like Survivor and Joe Millionaire that offered a different kind of different kind of narrative for the for the audience goer. Um, cheaper to make too that yes and, and a lot cheaper to make yeah i mean even for a tv movie you're talking about a slashed budget but you're still talking about a fairly sizable budget mm-hmm. for that that film so um yeah and also again like there's there's not like a viewing community on television right. anymore like you could I, I, when i was a kid for example 
if there was a movie on, I don't know, uh, uh, USA, if there was like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 on USA, 8 o'clock, Tuesday night, you could just assume that a good portion of your, your friends or your group or whatever saw that because of the limited nature to television, right? right? So that's gone. And that also exploded around that time, especially when you had like TiVo and stuff mm-hmm. being introduced, which is like uh, DVR and on-demand uh, 1.0. Yeah, that that eviscerated that. So I, I'm actually I'm very curious to see uh, Elvis. I've heard good things about it. Kurt Russell plays Elvis in that made-for-TV film. The 1970s were prime time for made-for-television movies, especially. And uh, as for the other ones that you referenced, I haven't seen Starman. I think I've seen part of Assault on Precinct 13. I've probably seen more of the remake. I think Ethan Hawke was mm. in that. Very, very unfortunate film. And I haven't seen Dark Star. Yeah, I don't... I think... Dar- I started so, watching Dark Star. Dark Star felt like... At least from the from the 20 minutes that I watched uh, uh, Human E.T. So it's about Kurt Russell being an alien and... Uh, or the alien gets inside of Kurt Russell's body and then he starts acting all weird because he's an alien and then there's this woman that tries to hide him from the government. That's as far as I got. But it seemed like it was a pretty similar premise to uh ET. But yeah, that that one, Assault and uh Starman were the ones that I at least from these move uh cinema what would you call it? F- f- films, T V movies and, and and what would you how would you dis- distinguish them? Theatrical releases? Movies. movies. We just call, we call them a good old fashioned uh, <laughs> a film. Yeah, the the other I don't know. I mean the, the these these all fall into the canon though, I think I, I was it on the De Palma episode we're talking about how all these twentieth century filmmakers have a couple of practice films under their belt. And then they have the movie that's mm. you know, by the general public considered their first real movie. And I think, you know, as much as Assault on Precinct thirteen mm. uh, could be considered John Carpenter's first real movie, I think Halloween yeah. is what most people think of as that that breaking point. Just like how with, uh, you know, Stanley Kubrick, that's probably The Killing with uh, I don't, I, George Romero that, I mean, Night of the Living yeah. Dead would be that. Although, was that that his first movie in general? I can't remember. I can't remember. That's too far back now. I've watched too many films between our retrospective with Don Jolly and, and now. But, you know, you would you would have one or two films that were very sloppily done and then you would have like the real movie it was, yeah. come about. And that's, yeah. So, and, and then that would be where their their career essentially starts, right? So Halloween comes out in 1978. Uh, for all intents and purposes, it's considered the the first real slasher movie. I know some people consider Black Christmas to have that title by Bob Clark, who would later do a Christmas story. Very, very interesting range for that guy. And Halloween is an example of a low-budget film where you have a couple of creative individuals taking the reins on essentially everything in it. So, um, I mean, what, what, what is your vibe on Halloween? Because I, I, I've had mixed reactions to Halloween over the years. When I was a kid, loved the movie. Uh, as a teenager, I went to a revival screening of Halloween. And I, it was, for whatever reason, sitting in the theater and watching it, made it very easy for me to notice all the flaws in the movie and cheesy aspects. And the audience, and even myself, 
were laughing at some of right. the some of the, some of the parts of the movie audibly in the theater. And then, you know, I revisit it again and you know, it's still got a good dark nature to it. So I I don't know. Checking it out at different parts of my life, uh, different perspectives on the film. But where do you stand with Halloween as a whole? And also its impact on horror. It's it's uh very different to see it with the eyes of someone that doesn't really care much about movies, which was the, the first time I ever saw it as a early twenties, I think, or late teens. Uh, and see and sure. seeing it now when you have a little bit of more understanding of everything that goes into a movie, and you have a little bit of more appreciation for what the movie is, and and have it in a bit of a bit of context of, of when it came out. Because when I first saw it, I didn't even know that the movie was that old. I was just thinking that I was going to watch a horror movie, uh, but since it was the 90s, uh, the horror that you're accustomed to is a lot more uh, violent and a lot, a lot more uh, busy than this Halloween is. And uh, what you were uh, talking about, uh, you know, the reactions that other people were giving to it, that's something that I've encountered very recently whenever I try to show it to someone that I hasn't seen it because of all the... Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the the sensitivities that you have now when it comes to horror movies, which are completely different to what horror movies were back in those days, uh, and uh, just the pacing and the and the music, I, I still like it a lot. I still think that it's an enjoyable watch. It's goofy at, at, at points, which it's it's difficult to get away from whenever you watch a movie from those times, just because of how everything's changed. And I think that's that's something that you should expect from movies from the time. But I think the cinematography, the camera work, and the music, uh, it's still one of the best <laughs> when it comes to that genre, at least. Uh, and from, yeah. from 80s icons, I think that's probably the one that has the most rewatchability next to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If you, if you think about, you hmm. know, from, let's say, the sequels from uh, or the entire franchise of... Uh, Friday 13 and Nightmare on Elm Street and, you know, horror icons. Uh, I, I, Halloween and, and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre are, at least personally, the ones that I've watched the most, uh, along with, you know, Evil Dead 2, but that one's a little bit goofier, so I wouldn't put it on the same category. But when it comes to rewatchability, right. I, I don't know if there's any other, you know, 80s icon movie where you, that you can rewatch and still enjoy like like those two. Do you think the performances in the movie hold up? Uh, n- no, but it's very of the time. You know, it, it, it's di- it's sure. difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why uh, the actors from the 80s that are still going and are revered as amazing actors, even though they haven't really done much uh, in the past 10, 20 years. Uh, because the when, when you have a good actor in these movies, they really stand out just because of how average to below average everyone else is. So in this one, I think Jamie Lee Curtis is really good, but most of the performances are very cheesy 80s. Uh, at the same time... Well, I, I was actually going to say, I was, I was going to uh, add, I don't know if John Carpenter is really known for getting good performances out of his actors ever. I think The Thing might be the one film where you do have some genuinely good performances... And then the rest are 
not 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 so i mean not not terrible i won't say mm-hmm. that like there, there's definitely moments later in his filmography and early on in his filmography where there, there are some downright bad performances from actors but everything in between seems heightened in a way where it's fitting to the material i don't know i think amber heard was, was delightful in the world <laughs> Couldn't even, oh, I couldn't Jesus. even finish saying that. Uh, but it's probably because his movies have a very specific hero or very, very, uh, uh, like the hero is very obvious who it is. So the movie goes around that main character. So the the peripheral performances, I guess, are not as important as that. But at the same time, right. you don't really need good acting because those heroes are usually cartoons of our, like a, what a real hero you would expect it to be. Uh, so I, I, I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't come to a uh, John Carpenter movie expecting great acting. I think you would, you would go for there's going to be an iconic character probably, or you, or just to see what the vision of your Carpenter of this setting is. But uh, I guess in the Mount of Madness, Sam Neill is pretty good, but he he acts uh, he's very reserved at the beginning, and then he becomes deranged by the end. Uh, but again, even if it's a good performance, you're still looking at it through the eyes of cheesy movie from 20 years ago. So it's not it's not going to be as uh, or feel as realistic as maybe a modern movie just because of, you know, the tone. It, it doesn't matter what they do. It, it will feel different just because it's an older movie and the way I, it's like watching a 50 yeah. movies, a movie from the 50s and the way they speak. You know, before Brando or whatever changed yeah, yeah. all that. That transatlantic, yeah, yes, stage performance delivery that everybody like James Cagney. Yeah. Um, do you think that Halloween would have the impact that it's left on the genre and uh, also on John Carpenter's career if they had gone ahead with the original plan of making every Halloween film its own unique thing? Like, obviously, they tried to do that with Season of the Witch. And then they were like, ah, no, 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 no. We have to go back to the well with number four. Let's get Michael Myers back in there. If if it becomes so standout, does that take away from the original film and give more to the title itself, like Tales from the Crypt or Twilight Zone, where it's its own thing and maybe the individual things are, are fine, they're good mm-hmm. beneath that umbrella, but... Uh, it doesn't compare to the actual commercialness of that title itself. Well, that's the thing. Uh at that time when those icons were coming out, I think the mask and that villain will sell more than even the name of the movie because that's pretty much what still survives until now. You look at a, a Jason mask and you already you know immediately what he's referencing uh, because of how iconic it is. Now, uh, the Halloween thing, I think it didn't work just because of how the series started. If you're going to start your series with two movies of this main villain... Trying to change things on the third one. I don't know if the audiences at that time were as receptive to change as they are now with uh, the fact that now we have streaming services and we have so many ways of getting content that something like that will be better received now, I think. I don't know if the Halloween franchise would have gone further than number three if they kept going with that idea. You know, If they had done it on two, mm-hmm. maybe. But the fact that you establish that character in two movies and then on the third one, all of a sudden you want to change everything. I feel like it's too much of a change or too much of a of a the reason why you love these movies is not going to be on the third movie for it to to work like that. 
Now, if you if you mm-hmm. if you get something like VHS where you start with that, then I think it's a little bit easier because you already told your audience that this is what you're getting, no matter what you do. Yeah, yeah you, up front, mm-hmm. you're you're putting it out there. Yeah, um, would hmm. No, I, I I think you you nailed it as far as that goes. Why don't we get into the fog okay. next? The fog is a pretty low key John Carpenter film. It's not one that's often talked about. Compared to, say, Escape from New York, it's not one of those tentpole features in his in his filmography, but it did get a remake in the aughts when horror remakes were all the thing. I think Tom Welling from Smallville starred in that atrocious atrocious remake. Uh, I haven't seen The Fog in a while. I remember watching that because I couldn't get my hands on a copy of They Live, like that was what was available at Walmart. You could just take what you, like. Kind of like how I got Return of the Living Dead when I was 11, when I was looking for Dawn of the Dead. But Walmart didn't sell Dawn of the Dead. That was a rare movie to get a hold of. So uh, I remember watching The Fog and being very bored by it. It's a very slow-moving film, especially when you're 12 years old. And it's about uh, essentially like the ghosts of of sea Mm -hmm. pioneers, some pirates that come up from the ocean, like a little coastal town. That's SpongeBob uh, episode, right? (laughs) <laughs> with the ghost pirate yes. thing yeah it's uh it's fine that. it's it's kind of slow uh but it's such a small story like it's so condensed and so little that it's not i don't think it drags i, I saw it a couple of days ago just because i wanted to complete even though I, I i wasn't able to but uh i don't think it's that different from uh actually that's not true mm. Because these other movies are not. What were you going to compare? I was, I was going to say it's it's not that much different to. Uh, but then I, I looked at the list, and there's not really any others that are uh, like a, that feel as small as this one feels because everything happens in like this tiny town. But it, it mm-hmm. I think it suffers from the same thing that most of, of these movies do, which is just you know it's an '80s movie. So when you watch it, you know what you're getting. You're getting that acting that's going to be kind of cheesy. You're going to get the effects that you can appreciate, but you can tell they're not very good. Uh, but it, it, it's yep. it's weird that it's not mentioned more, like you said, because I was even confused before I watched it. I was confused if I was going to watch The Fog or The Mist uh, before I saw it, because I, I remember uh, just combining those two. And it's kind of a similar thing where in The Mist is just monsters, like these alien monster things. And in this one is like pirates. But it's not it's not dissimilar. Obviously, the mist gets a little a little wacky with their their monsters, yeah. and I think that's probably a more entertaining film. It has a more satisfying conclusion. Uh, the fog, I, you know, you know, it's again, it's just a slow moving, small feature. It's it's probably it was probably a good move for him to do something like this between Halloween and Escape from New York, uh, which are two like <laughs> big explosive films by comparison. Um, I don't know if I really have much to say about The Fog. It was kind of like, it felt, it came out at a time where like PG horror movies were still a thing, yeah. you know? So you had like this and Poltergeist and so you you don't have any kind of excessive gore or scares or like, or ghost story. You ever see ghost story where it's just four old men being haunted by a ghost no. and it's got like a bunch of veteran actors. I think like Peter O'Toole's in that. It's based on a Peter Straub uh, book. Anyway, uh, The Fog is all right. I mean, I, 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 that's all I really have to say about this movie. If you look at the list of films, you can see how this one fits on his filmography, though. Like, when you watch it, you can see things that 
he does in movies further in his career. And uh, because this is not the first one I watched, this was one of the last ones, actually. You can see really little things that he mm-hmm. did here that he expands on on the bigger movies. So it, it feels like a, you know, like a step into the direction that he ends up taking with his film. So I, I don't dislike it at all. I, it, yeah. it is slow, but it makes sense within the timeline of his movies that this was, you know, before, before yeah. Escape from New York and The Thing and those bigger, more explosive, more graphic movies, I guess. Um, but I, I don't know. I, right. And... and- that becomes his reputation, you know, is, is he is this big over the top filmmaker that is full of style. Um, and, and this is very reserved by comparison. That's the best yeah. way to put it, I think. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you if you're if you're huge on They Live or Escape from New York or any of those films and then you watch this, you're in for a very different kind of experience. It's probably closer to Halloween. Yeah. Recommended. Probably. <laughs> 